Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today we're going to be talking about a book called Faith and Feminism in Pakistan, Religious Agency or Secular Autonomy by Dr. Afia S. Zia. And I am thrilled to welcome to the podcast the author of this book. Welcome, Afia. Amy, thank you so much. Thank you for being here. And I'd like to introduce you professionally first. Maybe I'll just read your professional bio and then I'll ask you to introduce yourself a little more personally after that. Sure. Dr. Afia Zia is a feminist scholar who has taught gender studies at the University of Toronto, Canada and Habib University in Pakistan. She is the author of three books, and her most recent book is the one we'll be discussing today. Again, it's Faith and Feminism in Pakistan, Religious Agency or Secular Autonomy. She has authored over a dozen peer-reviewed essays in scholarly publications, and she's contributed chapters for over 10 edited volumes, including an award-winning publication on human rights. And she's currently a professor at Wesleyan University. So again, welcome, Dr. Zia. And I'd love it if you could just tell us a little bit more about you, where you're from and your family and your education and what you bring to the work you do today. Sure. Thanks, Amy. I've grown up in Pakistan. I've always lived here. I've politicked here. I I sort of have been involved in, and even my career has been here. I have two sons. They've both grown up in Pakistan as well. But I grew up in the 1990s in two different provinces. Pakistan comprises of four provinces, now a fifth one. And they're all, Pakistan's incredibly diverse. There is tremendous diversity in terms of languages spoken, in terms of ethnic background, of course, in terms of class. So growing up in two provinces is significant because it means that you're exposed to very different kinds of political contexts. And I think that enriched me tremendously. And although I, I went to a private school, I went to an English-speaking sort of mode, my mode of education was, it was elite, it was a certain privileged background, even though my family wasn't particularly privileged in terms of, it, we were not part of a landed elite, but yes, certainly in terms of our education. And so what that meant is that we were of the 1% or even less of the elite in Pakistan. And the school that I went to, all the students, it was a, based on a Cambridge system and, and most of my colleagues and peers went off to university straight after. That was the whole plan that they go to university overseas after after being at their schooling, basic schooling in Pakistan. I was not sent overseas. My dad was concerned and said that, you know, you had to prove yourself and he didn't want to send women to a certain conservative background in those days, you know, and, and boys used to be sent off to universities overseas, but girls, were there was more protectionist kind of approach to women. So I went on to do my, both my degrees, my undergrad and postgrad degrees in Pakistan. And that's when I moved to another mm -hmm. province. And I moved from a co-education sort of elite private school to public university in both these provinces. And that was a huge exposure, a sort of a declassing moment for, for myself. And when I grew up, when I did my postgrad degree in Lahore at the, at Kanair College, which is part of Punjab University, what I learned was, and Park, Lahore is the hub of sort of political activism historically, and a vibrant left and feminist movement, uh, you know, since partition, since 1947 when Pakistan was found. And that's where I learned, and I think cut my teeth on or sort of learned my feminist politics from an entire generation of fairly radical feminists who had launched movements and a strong women's movement in the 1980s against the military dictatorship, which was prevalent in many parts of the world. But certainly Pakistan has seen its share of several military dictatorships of various flavors, if you like, in different variants. 
So that's the Pakistan I grew up in, sort of disconnected a little bit or, or sort of declassed my politics from my class. And there was a huge disconnect then between the people I grew up with and the new colleagues, peers, comrades that I became. We had study groups, we initiated all sorts of things, but also a fairly stunted political child sort of youth or time period for us, for my generation. I've always called us children of dictatorship, children of Ziaul Haq's dictatorship, because it was a very ascetic, Islamizing, a period of Islamization that he purported to unleash on Pakistan and which for which we are still paying the price. So we are a very specific generation of a very specific military dictatorship. And I think the next generation is paying the price for it in some ways. By which I mean, Amy, that we went in two different directions. Many of my colleagues and comrades and, and peers went down the Islamic route, went and got, you know, their identities were very linked to religious, their religious identities, while a whole bunch of us sought resistance and they found refuge in religion and we resisted that. And there was a kind of a split amongst our generation as well. So there was a lot happening in the 1990s when I grew up. I did then go for a degree in women's studies overseas, prompted by my mentors and my teachers and the senior founding members of the women's movement. I did a degree in women's studies from England, from the University of York, came back, was involved in setting up a women's studies center where we were going to fuse theory and activism in Lahore again. And then, you know, four years later, while we were still doing it, I did get married and had both my boys and moved back to Karachi. So it was a bit of back and forth. And then I got more involved in the academic side and derived my career in terms of writing, researching and teaching in Pakistan. The Wesleyan University, I've sort of completed my degree, my time period over there. I was just a visiting professor over there for one year, which oh. ended last year in 2022. Yes. And I'm back in Pakistan doing research again. And the Wesleyan experience was fantastic. It's the first time I taught American students. I've, I've lectured everywhere in Europe and, and, and America, North America, but this was my first full exposure in terms of being embedded at the university. And I had a fantastic mm. time. It was a tremendous growing experience, enriching experience. It was also post Black Lives Matter, new generation. The first time I had students who were also sort of either transitioning or identified themselves with the trans community. And that was a huge learning experience for me as well, to have them in the classroom. That is something that we may have. It was not, it was always covert. So that's a little bit of the arc, the, the big arc of my sort of growing up and my career. Well, thank you for sharing that. If I can back up just a little bit, and this might be an elementary question, but for some listeners who might need a refresher about Pakistan and the history, could you just remind us about, you mentioned partition in 1947 when Pakistan was born, but if you could talk a little bit about that, just to give us kind of a feel for the background for a conversation. Well, yeah, I mean, so Pakistan is sort of now, it became independent in 1947, independent of both British colonial rule in India, India, Pakistan was part of India, as was Bangladesh. And in 1947, not only did Pakistan get freedom from the British colonial, there was a huge nationalist movement prior to that, but also from partition from India. And that's why it's in, it's interesting. It's called, you know, sort of a post-colonial moment when you're liberated from the colonial oppressors, but you also found independence and partitioned yourself. And it, the partition word is interesting because it's it was almost like, it was a very bloody partition. There were sort of millions displaced and millions lost their lives. But it was also fratricidal in the sense that, you know, we had, we've been one, one block and one homeland for, for centuries. And 
Muslims and Hindus and Christians to a less extent lived together. But after colonial rule, it, there was a lot of division and animosity and a splitting up of those identities eventually led to Pakistan being formulated for gaining independence in 1947. And subsequently, there was an East Pakistan and a West Pakistan on both sides of India. And uh, East Pakistan then in 1971 won liberation from West Pakistan and became Bangladesh. So we are today part of South Asia, India to our east, Afghanistan to our west, China to our north, and um, sort of a population of a growing population, the fourth most populous country in the world, so a booming you know, population in that, in that sense. And the women's movement is, has an interesting um, trajectory because after Pakistan was formed, it was always formulated with the concept, and this is an ongoing debate, of course, about, you know, which, which happened in nation states, it happened in Israel, it happens with us, whether we were founded as an Islamic homeland or a homeland for Muslims of the subcontinent. You know, that's an ongoing debate. But definitely, historically, factually. It was a modern nation state. It was conceived as a modern nation state. Some argue, the secularists argue that Jinnah, M.A. Jinnah, who is the founder, always perceived and several of his speeches discuss the concept of a secular homeland where everybody could pursue their religion as they wanted. The Islamists, in fact, were against the concept of a separate homeland for Muslims because their, their understanding was that this would split the pursuit of a Muslim, global Muslim community, the Ummah, right? And we were, we, obviously there were more Muslims left behind in India than there were Muslims in Pakistan. So just by virtue of population. So that was a, an appropriate fear. But of course, that's in hindsight, that's history. And Pakistan then, the constitution as it was founded was what we argue was secular. But as I mentioned, General Ziaul Haq in 1977, when he took over via a coup in Pakistan, he made it this, you know, so it became an excuse to, to violate the constitution. It became an excuse to say that, you know, Pakistan is not sufficiently Islamic or Muslim. And I'm going to now institute Islamization, which meant changing the laws, making hybrid certain laws to the post-colonial laws were made Islamic and sort of giving it a, a brush, an Islamic brush. And this was when the 1979 revolution in Iran was taking place too. So a whole, you know, sort of a shifting of identities from South Asian, uh, Indian, pluralist kind of history to a more rigid, orthodox Islamic state. We move from a Muslim nation towards an Islamic state, that kind of identity shift. And the women's movement, which is a modern women's organizations, you know, the All Pakistan Women's Association was founded in 1949. It was led by the prime ministers, the first lady, the prime minister's wife, and a lot of even business and professional associations, girls' guides associations, nurses' federations. There was a democratic women's association, which was a Marxist-oriented organization. There was a lot of progress, if you like, and a modernization project you could see in, in Pakistan taking place in the early years, which then sort of collapsed, which even went into a different direction, into a socialist direction in the 1970s, under Prime Minister Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, who was a populist leader. His wife, the First Lady, then was also very, very active on women's rights. But all of this kind of collapsed, and, and many Pakistanis will mark the collapse of Pakistan from 1977, when the military coup did not just two things happen. Not only was there internally a pursuit for this Islamization and changing the, the fabric of society and state and laws and constitution, but, and institutions, of course, but also got engaged in the Cold War 
in terms of you know aiding the United States against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. We got involved in Afghanistan. Mm. So that's why consequently post 9/11 or the 9/11 period makes Pakistan in the eye of the storm again. But but it has a longer history. Hmm. That was so helpful. I realized I've studied enough about Pakistan and India in that region to have like a very, very kind of a faint sketch. And you just connected so many dots for me and really filled it in with so much helpful information. So thank you. So let's dive into the book. You've mentioned a, a bit about the feminist movement in Pakistan, and I'm really struck by the fact that it was present right from the beginning. I think you said 1949. So that was right at the beginning of the formation of the country, I guess, which is really striking to me. Maybe what we'll do is start with the way that you open your book, which is the story of the lady health workers who were distributing the polio vaccine. Could you tell us that story and tell us why you chose to open your book that way? Yes. So what I was looking for is that I realized that, you know, there was a generational shift in the feminist movement, in the women's movement in Pakistan. And it was quite clearly marked. So what I mentioned is the All Pakistan Women's Association, a more sort of older ladies looking to modernize Pakistan. In the 1980s, Women's Action Forum gets founded, a far more radical resistance, a radical feminist resistance, not about women's rights anymore, but now about feminism by a, a generation which included women like Asma Jahangir, who was the well-known human rights champion, lawyer, and her sister, and they set up an all-women's legal firm. So in the 1980s and 1990s, you have poets, you have women in the rural areas, you have sort of women in in professions, the trade unions, women coming into their own and resisting and just saying, because Ziaul Haq made women the target of his Islamization project, so women fought back. So very clear sort of relationship, women on the forefront of pro-democracy and and feminist pursuits and feminist ends. So it was an incredibly exciting time. He shut, you know, Ziaulak shut down dance, cultural pursuits, and women fought back. Art, you name it. Every profession, every discipline, you saw resistance. So that's the kind of feminism I grew up under. 9-11, the events of 9-11 take place, and I see a generational shift where, particularly in American academia, certainly, but Muslim in the Muslim world as well, we now get into this exploration of how there are rights within Islam, which there certainly are, but on how to leverage those and pursuing the idea that there is an agency and possibility and options and perhaps cultural appropriateness in looking for rights within Islam, and that would be more palatable to the masses as well as to the state, rather than this alien thing called secular Western feminism, etc., Now, that was interesting because in the 1980s and 90s, feminists in Pakistan were breaking down those, that concept that this is a Western concept or that this secularism means anti-religion, etc. And now I see, you know, in 2001, we're right back to this place of romancing with religion and, and looking at women's empowerment within religion. But this is not feminist. These are not feminist ends. And then we see the growth of another proposal, but mainly by diaspora, Iranian diaspora, Muslim feminists, looking at the concept of Islamic feminism. That created a whole debate globally. So there's certainly a shift. And the debate became then, you know, if we are already following secular, should we be following secular strategies and pursuing secular ends? Or do we shift our strategies towards faith-based strategies and and sort of look towards mobilizing those on the right looking for more space over there. That became a huge debate, academic 
and strategic. The concern that I had at this time was that it, it wasn't just academic. It was a lot of donor and developmental agencies, particularly USAID and the British government, all pandered to this. They found this really interesting where they, and it was convenient. It was a it was an opportunity for global patriarchies to merge together and say, we don't like this feminist stuff anyway. Let's not talk about transformative or structural change. And, you know, this kind of palatable, slow, easy Muslim women's rights within Islam, it has its limitations. It sort of gives everybody their right roles. It doesn't disturb culture. It doesn't bother local patriarchs. We don't want to mess with these you know, sort of radical Muslims anymore. We want to sort of appease them and have their buy-in. So let's just go this way and give them home-based work rather than coming outside of the house. Let's teach them rights within, you know, reinterpret the Quran and, and Islam and, and give them a little bit of rights here and there. But this radical stuff is not is not suiting anybody across across academic, theoretical, developmental and political world. So this causes concern to me because we're feminists looking for transformative change, radical change, you know, and looking for sexual autonomy at the same time. And how is that going to happen? So what happened is there was a complete silence on sexual autonomies at the in the whole 20 years. My argument in the book has been nobody has been looking for secular strategies and secular trends and secular modes of operation. And what I then sought out to do as part of my PhD thesis and research was to look at those women who had always been working class, but had in an uninterrupted way, they kept pursuing rights and performing their duties and performing and looking for goals and ends and services that were in fact secular in in their operation for secular ends, for liberal rights and were bypassing religion altogether. Now, this did not mean that they were not Muslim or they were not practicing Muslims or they did not identify as Muslims. Of course they did. But their politics did not engage or instrumentalize religion. The reason I know about the lady health workers is because we'd been involved. So all of these different groups had been, they come together in Pakistan and certainly in other parts of the world as well. Women across classes across religious identities and across provinces or ethnicities have always come together when we have realized that the state is targeting women or taking away our rights. We sort of have this direct, always have had this direct resistance pitted against the state because, Amy, if the state is not on your side, it's a lost cause. It may or may not deliver anything, but it cannot be against us and particularly not a militarized state like the Pakistan state. It's a nuclear state. It's a male dominant state. And anytime you want to make space, it has to be pitted at the state. You need to get a piece of it, right? And the lady health workers launched their campaign for minimum wage because they were always on contractual and not getting their rights because they were contractual labor. They do incredible work. They go to spaces in far-flung areas which no one else goes to. The state can't reach them. So it employs these women. They also get piggybacked on to doing things like polio work. Polio, they administer polio drops because Pakistan is one of the you know last two or three countries that still is struggling to eliminate polio, the polio virus. And they also started getting, they were becoming the targets of extreme or radical right-wing outfits and Islamist groups who, under the suspicion, there was a whole series of suspicions against them that they were you know they were prostitutes going door to door because they go door to door administering these drops and also giving pre and postnatal health advice and care to women 
So it became extreme because they was they were being murdered for the work that they were doing, and they were giving contraception, which is also birth control, which radic you know sort of the more not even the radicals, even mainstream Islamists have been anti birth control for the same reason that Christian fundamentalists are. So for a whole host of reasons, these women became the most courageous women, but also the most targeted, particularly when the Taliban had come into Pakistan territory and formed the Tehrike Taliban Pakistan. So there was a, it was a very tense period, but these women never stopped. I mean, it was incredible. They never stopped fighting for their rights. They continued to campaign for equal wage for, for, for their work, for minimum wage. And they won their cases in because of the courage of their leaders. So when I observed all of these, and I would go to some of their protest movements, what I noticed is, apart from lending solidarity, I noticed that they, so what the state does, it, it also employs certain religious and clerics and leaders who are pro-birth control and who are more sort of progressive in the area because it, it enables the state to send out certain messages by employing these clerics who carry on the agenda of the state. You know, so, so of course, clerics and Islamists are also of a wide variety. Some are more progressive on certain factors, on certain fronts, and others are more regressive or anti-women. So these were the pro-state kind of actors. But the lady health workers were not happy with these clerics. I asked them, but, you know, they're helping you with your polio work. They're helping you to expand and bust some myths and to sort of help in the campaign for convincing people to take polio drops and to be part of, to take contraception for, for birth control, etc. So why are you sort of protesting their involvement? And these lady health worker leaders said, this is not their work. You know, th this is not their mandate. This is our work. We're perfectly capable of doing it for ourselves. And they're simply transgressing onto our turf. And the issue is that they may be helping us on this issue, but they are adversaries on many other issues that we do, we work on and women's rights. So why should we be dependent on these men who sort of change their tune every single day? And I thought, what a fantastic, not just symbolic, but actual divergence and departure of what the feminist cause is. It's precisely this, that, you know, men are allies to a certain extent, you know, to, to some extent, but they go against the grain of feminist ends. And the lady health workers, the women are fighting for feminist ends. So uh, that I thought was a poignant and very important marker to make my point. It hasn't always been successful, trust me. I've gotten a lot of back pushback from feminists, younger feminists, who are not entirely convinced, who feel thanks to the work and of, of many academics around the Muslim academics, you know, in the Western academia, of saying that liberalism and secularism is all Western, universalism is a Western concept. And it may very well be to some extent, but the I was trying to recover the connection, the historical connection on how we have we have seen waves of secular resistance in Pakistan. And I was simply trying to show the continuity of it by looking at these three case studies, which included the lady health workers in particular, you know, and, and they were sort of obviously oblivious to the, the academic debate. But every time I would observe their work and continue to observe it today, I maintain that they are a secular resistance movement in Pakistan. I'm wondering, you know, I, I, hearing the story of the lady health workers and how they're being murdered and they're being targeted for their work. And then, you know, knowing the story of Malala Yousafzai and she was in the Swat Valley in Pakistan and you mentioned the Taliban coming in. It sounds like there was real danger in in speaking out and in, you know, 
advance, trying to advance a feminist cause. Mm-hmm. Did you feel, I mean, when you published this book, what, what year did you publish it? And did you feel any danger in speaking out so publicly about feminism? Mm, no. So, you know, it's, there's no comparison in terms of the dangers that women on the ground face and in the and, and, and on a daily basis, those who interface with institutions, those who are of the working classes and the vulnerable classes, there's no comparison. I am with my colleagues protected by our class and ah. protected by our education and protected by our privilege. So I have never felt any danger because I am not in danger. I, I write in ah. a certain privileged language as well. But that does not mean there are many of my colleagues, for example, lawyers, certainly, and they have been, you know, sort of, they have seen the backlash, just like abortion rights in the United States, for example, those women who are in the clinics are, of course, not, are threatened far more than those of my colleagues who write about it in university at Wesleyan or wherever, same with gun control, etc. So it's a parallel sort of, you know, vulnerability is class-based. It is, you know, definitely how how the courage of these women who have to deal with it and the interface, like I said, and sort of being in the thick of of, of activism, in the forefront of activists, they are far more under threat than, than I would be any day. Hmm. Okay, yeah, that's very interesting. Another thing that you said when you were speaking was that, correct me if I misunderstood this, but that a younger generation of Pakistani women criticized kind of this universalist interpretation what would they propose instead Mm -hmm. that would be more pakistani based i guess rather than western yeah i think that the critique is not dissimilar to the critique we were making which is about imperialism Mm -hmm. which is about you know american hegemony or about capitalist you know sort of manifestations and capitalist policies the imf the world bank global structures so as long as we have these kind of global structures and and pressures and inequalities and colonial leftovers, colonial institutions. The the argument is that it's not possible to be genuinely universal when you have sort of double standards and when the focus is only on, say, one religion or one grouping of, of people around the globe without looking at the other structures which are connected and which led us to this point. So it's a kind of a historical reckoning, whether it's about slavery, about imperialism, about colonialism, which is which is something that we have also always argued. But I think what, what the events of 9-11 did is because the focus was so much on Muslims and a kind of a, the injustices in the war on terror shaped the consciousness of this generation who saw it then only as persecution for American benefit and and sort of capitalist and and expansionism of the United States in the Muslim world uh, and a kind of defensiveness then which then puts the woman question always on the back burner and it is as if how can we bring up you know sort of feminist resistance against our own it's almost like a betrayal of the Muslim men in our countries who are also being persecuted and demonized and stereotyped. It's not just a symbolic thing, but actually being incarcerated and tortured and punished. So it puts women into a double bind. It puts Muslim women into a double bind, right? And it's very difficult to say that, you know, we call out local patriarchy when you're also calling out global patriarchy. Which one do you give priority to more? And I think the older women's movement was more used to it and they did a better straddling of it, combination of it, because of where we were located. But those Muslim women and scholars and feminists 
of a certain generation who were in Western contexts, they were speaking for a different audience. And the problem became is when they started sort of turning their critique onto feminists based in Muslim majority contexts and saying, calling them out, saying, you are betraying the cause or you are too imperialist or you are too Western, enamored by Western feminism and this is not appropriate and you should be more critical about drone attacks, about incarceration of Muslim men and demonizing of the Taliban, whereas we are looking at immediate, urgent things like polio workers being murdered and, you know, girls not being allowed to go to school and sort of a range of collapsing of women's rights, closing down of shelters, no more, you know, one entire province women being pushed back into the domestic. So it was, it they were different battles, right? And they should not have been, but they were. But and I think that's where the generational split comes about and, and sort of the disconnect and the lack of solidarity or the split in solidarity. You know, I, I think the feminist movement globally split on this. Some of, some of the reasons and some of the criticism was justified, you know, in terms of when the United States occupied Afghanistan, that didn't do anybody any favors. And we had to sort of, you know, sort of retreat, re-strategize and look for local solutions. It was very difficult then to find solidarity around the world when when they were busy occupying Iraq and, and Afghanistan. So it put all of us into a double bind and a lot of mistrust caused in that period. Yeah, that makes sense. Something that just came to my mind too that's related to this, I suppose, is a TED Talk. And I'll have to look up the title after after the interview okay. because I don't have it at the top of my head, but I'll, I'll post it on our website. Mm-hmm. But it's a Pakistani woman activist who was j- just to speak to the complexity that you just described. She was going into very rural villages and trying to, you know, make progress with girls and women's rights and girls' education. But what she found was she would go into these villages and she herself being Pakistani, she still had this attitude of kind of a little bit patronizing at first and looking down on their local customs because they really were repressing girls and women. But she found that they weren't receptive at all to their message. And she had to try a completely different approach going into the village, villages, kind of getting to know them first, recognizing their autonomy, recognizing their the beauty in their culture. And she found that she had much I guess it's obvious to say this, but it's a really illuminating TED talk to say, like going in and respecting the group of people and getting to know them first and was a game changer. And they started to have a lot more progress that way. Just to your point of, you know, anytime someone goes into a community Mm. and then starts preaching, it just doesn't work, right? So a lot of the feminists and in Pakistan have been involved, you know, in development work or in social development or in gender awareness and women's empowerment schemes. So they are aware of, you know, how the, and the connection between the rural or the community and urban has developed a lot over, over 25 years, you know. Yes, newer, younger people coming into the field may would have to go through the rites of passage to discover this. But my take is a little bit different, you know, based on my experience, it's just because I'm, I'm older than them. But I've always said in, in projects that I do or in research that I do, and I come back sometimes and I, I speak to the commission, women's commission or human rights commission or to the different departments of the government. And I repeatedly say to them that the people of this country outpace what you think about them and they outpace and they are far ahead of what donor agencies and philanthropic societies think about them as well. So this notion of, you know, people have their, you know, the one 
condition I have whenever I speak to government or to any donors as well on in terms of projects is, please, let's not discuss this vague thing called culture. In fact, religion as well, but culture specifically, because nobody has any idea what it is. It's become a catchphrase and an excuse on both sides and a very lazy one, intellectually and academically speaking and policy wise. Just any time you hit a wall, you want to throw it into the culture dustbin and actually it doesn't belong there. Nobody's culture doesn't want to educate their daughter. Nobody's culture doesn't want them to have some kind of well-being and, and safety and security and progress and or telephones, cell phones, or aspirations. So I really dislike this term of, you know, cultural sensitivity, etc. Because very often when you get in there, yes, the male gatekeepers may make it difficult for you to understand or speak a certain vocabulary. But for those of us who have been doing it for 27 years, it's actually not difficult to connect immediately and say, do you get, you know, do you have a, a, an identity card? Why not? Do you have a phone? Why not? What's going on over there? We get to the heart of the problem very quickly because we have that experience, right? And so we speak a different language. Feminists, you know, if, you, if you're interested in, in emancipatory ends and you want to get to the bottom of something, I don't want anything from these women, right? The point is I'm not going to try and introduce a project for them. I'm only interested in, the, in knowing what's happening and what their aspirations are and what their feminist consciousness is or what it could potentially be. So if I'm not going in with an agenda, then it's easy for me to have this conversation and find out what's happening for social transformation. What are they already doing for social transformation? That's my curiosity. And that was my, that's what I learned about the lady health workers. It's already happening. It's a matter of documenting it for me, for academics. Now, if you have an agenda and you want to go and introduce contraception or the state wants them to do something, vote for them, whatever, that's a different ball game, right? That's not feminist interest. Mine is a feminist interest. So I have different findings. And I have therefore I will introduce different strategies and and connect with women in different provinces according to their priorities, not according to cultural differences. Where, you know, culturally we are the same in many ways as feminists. I'm I'm saying I connect with other women in Pakistan as a feminist would, always. And that's my interest. Mm. So I see it from a different lens. And I mean, I'm just struck even by the sentence that kind of went by quickly, but you said, you know, there's nobody who would say they don't want their daughters to go to school. Where does that come from then? Because you do have communities, don't you? Am, am I wrong that there are communities that don't allow girls to go to school? I mean, so where does that come from is just myths and sort of media misconceptions and a small percentage of incidents that get blown into out of context and also, you know, how global media likes to play this up. So it's a sensationalism, but it has no academic or theoretical or actual re empirical evidence involved in it, right? That's where it comes from. So there is nobody in Pakistan, no community that one knows of in Pakistan that would not or does not send their daughter, forget about sons, sends their daughters now to school. The complication begins and because it is a complex issue, is in fact, in fact, just to complete that, the problem with education, for example, girls' education in Pakistan is the, on the supply side, not on the demand side. And actually, the same is true about birth control or about bodily control, about reproductive rights, which is why I opened with this sentence that it's not culture. It's a very material, logistical, practical problems that the country faces. And in fact, I would argue most countries face, right? But we get spun into these ideological problems and sort of the media, global media and, and sort of vested interests 
play that up as well. And we misread and misanalyze a lot of stuff. The complexities begin then when this demand cannot be, you know, the supply does not catch up with the demand and the demand cannot be met. And then people start resorting to all sorts of different means or or there's a failure in terms of this education ends or educational ends or, or reproductive health ends. So the problem in, for example, in education is that there, because there's not enough, there are not enough secondary schools, there are primary schools, but not enough high schools for girls, girls go uneducated. And if you have a supply of those schools, you would meet half the problem of, of that would end. Now, there would always be a preference because it's poverty driven. Many decisions are poverty driven in Pakistan because there are a majority of poor people. They would prefer then to get their daughters married off at an early age rather than sending them to some far-flung school where there's security issues. We, you know, there's not enough girls, there's not enough teachers, it's too insecure. So of course they're going to get them married off because it's an economic decision to get the girls married off. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm simplifying it, but what I'm suggesting to you is the larger issue, is, the answer to your question is, yes, there is no community that I would know of across Pakistan who would not want to send their daughters to, to school and would not want a better future for their daughters. If they had an option against getting them married off early, they would certainly pursue it. The social stigma, the social side of it is, of course, something that needs to be dealt with as well. But, you know, you have to do things on a, on two levels. You, Of course, you have to take care of the societal issues but you have to provide the basic material needs and fundamental rights that people anywhere in the world deserve that's where the problem lies you know it's it's a, if you like it's a secular concern it's not a religious cultural issue so am i understanding correctly i mean as i think of again malala the example that most people in the world would know and associate with the taliban and the swat valley i i mean would you say that that perhaps i I would imagine you would say, yes, that's a real issue, but that it was perhaps blown out of proportion. And so most of the world has misconceptions about what that actually means in yeah. Pakistan. Well, and- yes. I mean, so, so the Taliban is, is not Pakistan. And the Taliban mm-hmm. was a banned outfit by the Pakistani state, right? So mm-hmm. the group or an outfit which every country in the world has banned outfits. So, you know, people who do things which are illegal, anti-constitutional, anti... In fact, they were, they have, the Tehreek-e-Taliban Pakistan have always been known, you know, as anti-Pakistan, which is a big, big mm-hmm. issue in, in a nationalist kind of fervor where you have that kind of fervor. So I don't even know where that misconception is coming from. The Taliban does not represent Pakistan. Yes, when they were sort of their political expression in terms of blowing up schools, they said they were taking revenge for us, siding with the United States in the war on terror, etc., etc. Whatever the logic of, or their politics behind that. But they do not represent Pakistan. They were certainly, Pakistan was not represented by this kind of policy. Pakistan has never blown up any schools. We build schools, don't blow them up. And Malala was, a, was sort of collateral damage in that larger tussle. Islam and you know religion does not prohibit girls' education, in fact, quite the opposite. So there's nobody in Pakistan, ideologically or otherwise, even on the right or the right wing. What they would say to you is that we should get, and even the Taliban, incidentally, when they were blowing these schools up and targeting Malala, they said we did not target her because she's pursuing education. It's because she's pursuing secular education. She should be going for Islamic education. So there's a whole history behind, I mean, there's a very clear pattern behind what was happening over there. And, and that itself explanatory. 
But it was, for, the reason it, it became Malala's symbolic for us and, and sort of a symbol of resistance for us is because she was attacked because she was determined to go back to school despite the threat. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what makes her a symbol for women's empowerment in Pakistan. Because, but she's not, she's not the only one. There's a whole history of women going against military dictators, clerics, presidents, prime ministers, police leaders, male leaders. We defy. We are defiant. And we get that this is the backlash and Malala is just one more member of that defiance. And that's what she represents, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the most touching parts of that story also is her father, I feel like. And that is emblematic of, to your point, that you know, families do want their girls to be educated, that he was her champion, you know, so you have this Muslim Pakistani man who's the, you know, this great champion of girls' education. So even that within that story, it's already apparent that... Yeah, and that they do play an important role. I mean, of course, there's a debate, even amongst feminists about the role of men in that. But I'm one Mm -hmm. of those who, who finds that it's important when we say break down patriarchy, that that has to be within the home as well. And where the patriarch breaks down, you know, breaks down that dynamic within the home, it makes a big difference in terms of the women coming out, whether it's women in sport, whether it's women in dance, cultural expression and education, or in politics for that matter, women who come into politics, there is a breaking down of the patriarchy within their house. All women defy that and despite that become icons, feminist icons in Pakistan. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I talk about a lot, too, that is really important to me is that that's a project for the whole human family, including men, to break down those patriarchal systems and for us all to work on it together. So in your book, you talk about waves of feminist movement. And we've we've kind of talked about the first two in the 1980s and the 1990s. And then we just talked about 9-11 and then about Malala. But I'm, I'm wondering if we can spend the last bit of the episode talking about the third wave that you write about in your book. But even beyond that, can, can you tell us a little bit about what's been going on in Pakistan for the, the past decade or so? And then what's next? Mm-hmm. So really interesting shift and, and a new wave of women's resistance and demands, actually. And I think what's happened in since 2018, inspired by the global Me Too movement, women, younger women in Pakistan decided to break the mold of the more traditional approach to women's rights, which was through non-governmental organizations and development organizations. And a kind of it had become a kind of a passive and, and, and very development-oriented empowerment-led movement. And, and it had sort of stagnated to a, to a large extent. And when in 2018, the a younger generation decided to hold a series of marches, what they call the Aurat March or the Women's March, that the very first one that they held was an incredibly defiant, rude, awakening kind of messaging and slogans that that identified them as different from the earlier movement in terms of sexual rights and sexual autonomy and, and talking about bodily autonomy and bodily rights and, of course, about harassment, which was already a, a discussion and a conversation because more and more women were uh, registering cases against sexual harassment in Pakistan and that was creating waves and, and causing anxiety to a lot of men and to the right wing as well, but to progressive liberal left men too. So when these protest movements, the Aurat marches began all over the country simultaneously, 
one of the core slogans at the very first movement march that they promoted in the events was mera jism meri marzi which is my body my right now that mm. created huge ripples you know i mean of course the connotation was quite clear about sexual autonomy sexual freedom and you know moralists and purists even even more liberal feminists to some extent had a huge problem in exactly what we were discussing earlier that is it appropriate to have these discussions you know is it appropriate to talk about sexuality in an islamic republic so all of those earlier debates came to a head if you you know in in this on this platform and it was a moment of reckoning it it created a debate there was a huge backlash there was a and social media erupted at the same time became a mode of of activism and but when it went offline and came onto the streets when you start capturing the streets that worries patriarchs a lot so there was a big backlash in the last 4 years or 5 years there has been growing sort of not just a backlash but growing opposition to these aurath marches and to these women and and they get sort of the, the tensions peak every single year in the last year they these women and the organizers have even had blasphemy cases of blasphemy said against them and they've had opposition by an alternative movement called the haya march or the modesty march which is taken out in opposition by the pious or the piety movements women's movements in pakistan the veiled ones the ones who promote the veil who promote islamic rights and who want to talk about women's islamic duties and their their slogans is my body is allah's right not my right right so kind of a a pious mm. messaging over there now i as you've seen in the book this is something that i've been forewarning even since my book which came out at the same time in 2018 and i've been writing consistently on this there's been a reluctance and a cause of criticism of my critique of of these movements or a forewarning or a cautioning that you know amy i've always argued that for feminists you you have to understand and acknowledge there is patriarchy and that's the opposition in a democracy you have to understand in pakistan that in our democratic uh, struggles that the military a military hegemony is always going to be the opposition and it's going to be an obstacle for us capitalism for socialist capitalism is always going to be that and for the same reason i keep telling them that for religious hegemony or religious politics you have to offer secular resistance right i mean for me it's quite clear that this is the kind of if you want a transformative change then these are the kind of avenues you have to pursue you have to acknowledge them you have to embrace them and then you have to have strategies to overcome them but if you start sliding down and sort of compromising and looking for something appropriate or negotiating with patriarchy then you're going to get caught in the middle somewhere and my critique of the younger women's or at march movements have been that if you don't face up to these oppositional obstacles and if you try and circumvent it there will come a time when it will be in your face and i think that that's what's happened and last year one of them had to one of the chapters had to retreat they say it's not a retreat i see we saw it as a retreat when they held their their event in a park rather than a street protest and sort of that that's created a debate or triggered a debate on what is the mode and what is the end and who's more liberal and who's more radical and you know kind of this kind of splits in the academic conversation around us however as i said earlier when when things are tough and when women see that you know the the patriarchal head rear itself in different forms and different formats they come together on on many platforms and i think this year next month we will see how strong 
the comeback is and how we can gather our energies again and give weightage to this new wave that is sort of taken taken the lead in 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 promoting the feminist cause it's not like they don't discuss other issues and only sexual rights or sexual autonomies or lgbtq rights it's just that that's an add on or it's been a neglected area and they're rightfully rightful to bring that back onto the agenda it has to be tied onto the agenda you can't say wait for you know economic rights like the socialists do or wait for legal rights and then one day we will deal with trans community rights or lgbtq rights or bodily rights it has to be woven into the cause the feminist cause so i think this is an interesting moment where the merger is happening in a stronger way the economic situation in pakistan is is very very challenging there's an economic collapse at the moment but i think that that does not mean that we forfeit the other issues of violence of of rights of legal rights of sexual rights and and put them onto the agenda as well so the women are determined to hold this march next month and i think if it sends out a strong message if they don't retreat i think that means that the future is going to be one of continuity of feminist challenge the debates will go on but i think the you know, pakistani women and feminists have never given up and i think that it's important that they they maintain this momentum and and my only concern is that you know the issue, the class issue should not be suppressed you know and my my bias is towards putting class onto the agenda again and putting secular resistance onto the agenda and not losing that and there'll always be some who will be with me on 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 that agenda item what does it look like to have class not on the agenda i mean do you have like people really kind of explicitly excluding people of different classes no, from the movement you can't you can't exclude or is it more subtle it, well it, it's not that it's not it's just where we give priority so if we're focusing on violence or if we're focusing on reproductive rights on education yes all of those are tied to of course they're tied to labor rights etc but we have not I, my my argument has been that we don't have, we haven't developed a feminist economics in this country we have not foregrounded the class issue there's no one movement that can be associated or identified as something that looks at women's class identities and foregrounds it as the one main identity it's always been merged with other things like violence or hidden or, or connected and yes we need a holistic feminist movement but we also need one i feel that promotes and and looks at labor rights looks at economic rights and and gives women of of the working classes the lead and leadership that is something that is lacking in pakistan i feel and and needs to be we need to pay more attention to that and put up energies behind that you know we've looked at religious identities we've looked at violence we've looked at feminist identities from legal perspective and from political leadership but really we've got to look at working class leadership from from women and they are there working class leaders are there in all the the movements that i mentioned in my book and there are far more but we need to give them a better platform and a higher platform and give them the lead and and be their winged you know in in terms of the mm. future because i think that that's a neglected area hmm. beautiful okay again off the record is there anything else you'd like me to ask you or anything else you'd like to say as we wrap up just so no, i make sure Amy, i've been talking a lot there is nothing it's more wonderful. that i have to <laughs> you know, what i will say is that you know i think what we need to be mindful of one of the, the reasons that i i wrote this book is 
the idea was that it had been 20 years since the the previous book that tried to encompass and document what the women's movement and what feminist movements and threads and thinking was. And for 20 years, all I saw was literature that was looking at religious identities, that was looking at violence, that was looking at development and even legal rights, political rights to some extent. But it was not, there was no holistic documentation of what was happening in the, on what the debates were happening in the women's movement. And therefore there was, you know, people sitting in Western universities writing about us. And I felt the need to document our experience and our debates. It's not conclusive. It's not authoritative. It doesn't pretend to be, but it was challenging the literature that was coming out in Western universities by my colleagues and by our peers and saying, this is our, this is what our debates have been. And they do not fit into the mold that you are looking at it from the Western academic perspective. And can we can we question that? Can we offer our voices and our debates? You know, and ironically, that was being seen as a Western feminist agenda, and sort of you know, and I found that quite ironic. So, what I've tried to offer is the you know there was somebody who said very interesting, a woman, young woman who was sort of interviewing me for this and said, you know, your sources and your bibliography is perhaps one of the most helpful things. You know, forget the thesis. This is one of the most helpful things Mm -hmm. because, you know, where do we take a start? And every time somebody in Pakistan, young women attempt to write, the pushback we get from academia is, oh, your sources are not, you know, are not academic. They're not scholarly. And it, it took me a long time to break through the ideological because I was writing about secular resistance at a time when everybody else, the authoritative thesis being produced at Yale and, and you know, Columbia and all so as was about women's religious identities. So I was not getting publishing space or a voice. It was not a popular theory or document to come out or proposal to come out at the time. And secondly, of course, the pushback was I was located here. I was not in a Western academy. So I find it really ironic when people attempt to pin this notion, oh, this is Western orientalist, feminist, you know, it's about, it falls into universal patterns and a certain guy. I find that hilarious because, you know, (laughs) they have no idea how difficult it was to break through those stereotypes, those myths, and the compulsions and the constrictions of what a feminist sitting in Pakistan can write about. You know, we can talk about, if you can talk about sexuality in Pakistan, surely I could speak about secularism and secular resistance in Pakistan. So that was a strange kind of generational turn. But I think there is a now, uh, we've taken that turn and there is a, a younger generation that has a very different understanding of it. And I'm I'm really glad for this book and for the thesis, because they connect and discuss it in a very different way. So I think you have to you have to challenge your own generation and have you have to speak across them and speak to another generation, a future generation. And I think at least I think the feedback that I get and, the, and because I work with them now, I think I've made that breakthrough. And and that is the one thing that I'm proud of that I may manage to make the connection. I am the bridge. Good or bad is not the issue. I am the bridge that between those two generations. And I think the book fills that gap in or or itself as that. That's that's all it is, you know. Hmm. That is a contribution to be proud of. And I'm I certainly learned so much from your book. I'm I'm very glad that I read it and so grateful to you for all the wisdom that you shared today on our episode. Thank you so much, Dr. Afia Zia, for being with us today. Thank you, Amy. It's a pleasure and it's been great speaking with you as well. Thank you.
Before I go, I'd also like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibes for our social media. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can head over to our website at breakingdownpatriarchy.com and our Instagram account at bedownpatriarchy for additional content and resources for today's episode. And if you'd like to help support the podcast, please consider sharing it with others, posting about it on social media, and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's all for this week, but be sure to join us again next time as we continue to become more educated, informed, connected, and active on Breaking Down Patriarchy. 